0: It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Here's the show. Good afternoon. My name is Maria Luisa Morales, one of your librarians at the Code St. Luke Public Library. In today's episode of Book Talking, I will briefly cover four interesting and thought provoking nonfiction books recently published. A new book written by City Journal contributing editor John Tierney and social scientist Roy Baumeister is titled The Power of Bad. The title may sound pessimistic or perhaps negative. However, it is not, as stated in the book subtitle, how the negativity effect Rules us and how we can rule it. The book provides coping strategies for the negativity bias that pervades our daily lives and offers tips so that we can be happy productive and well adjusted it tackles important questions such as why are we devastated by a word of criticism even when it is mixed with lavish praise because our brains are wired to focus on the bad. This negativity effect explains things great and small. Why countries blunder into disastrous wars? Why couples divorce? Why people do not do well at job interviews? How schools fail students? All day long, the power of bad governs people's moods, drives marketing campaigns, and dominates news and politics. Roy Baumeister stumbled unexpectedly upon this fundamental aspect of human nature. To find out why financial losses matter more to people than financial gains, Baumeister looked for situations in which good events made a bigger impact than bad ones, but his team couldn't find any. Their research showed that bad is relentlessly stronger than good, and their paper has become one of the most cited in the scientific literature. Our brain's negativity bias makes evolutionary sense because it kept our ancestors alert to fatal dangers, but it distorts our perspective in today's media environment. The steady barrage of bad news and crisis mongering makes us feel helpless and leave us needlessly fearful and angry. We ignore our many blessings, preferring to listen to the voices telling us the world is going to hell. But once we recognize our negativity bias, the rational brain can overcome the power of bad when it is harmful and employ that power when it is beneficial. In fact, bad breaks and bad feelings Creates the, mo- the most powerful incentives to become smarter and stronger. In few words, BAR can be put to perfectly good use. We rebel in praise for a much shorter time than we wallow in criticism. Regardless, write the authors, BAR can make us stronger in the end. Though it may be difficult to negate the negativity, the authors show how not to be ruled by it. Their prescriptions have mostly to do with reframing the context of the negative, isolating the rotten apple so it doesn't contaminate the remainder of the barrel. These specific strategies have a commonsensical tone Learn to be as creative with your praise as you are with your criticism. Protect yourself, and don't expect bad apples to change on their own. As the authors John Tierney and Meister show in this wide-ranging book, we can adopt proven strategies to avoid the pitfalls that doom relationships, careers, businesses, and nations. Instead of despairing and what's wrong in your life and in the world, you can see how much is going right and how to make it still better. Not everyone may agree with the author's points of view. Nonetheless, the book raises important important questions and provides provocative answers that challenge our present perspectives on the life we are living my second book is The Boy Who Fell Too Much, How a Renowned Neuroscientist and His Son Change Our View of Autism Forever. This excellent book is an international bestseller. The story behind Henry Markram's breakthrough theory about autism and how a family's unconditional love led to a scientific Paradigm Shift In Warner's new book, Henry Markram, the neuroscientist behind the billion dollar Blue Brain Project to build a supercomputer model of the brain, has set the goal of decoding all disturbances of the mind within a generation. This quest is personal for him the driving force behind his grand admission has been his son, Kai, who has autism. Raising Kai made Henry Markram question all that he thought he knew about neuroscience. And this questioning later shook the autism research world when Markram introduced his now famous theory of intense world syndrome, his groundbreaking research that would append the prevailing worldview that individuals with autism lack empathy. When Kai was first diagnosed, his father consulted studies and experts. He knew a lot about the human brain, but still felt as helpless as any parent confronted with this condition in his child. What's more, The scientific consensus that autism was a deficit of empathy didn't mesh with Mark Graham's experience of his son. He became convinced that the disorder, which has seen a 657% increase in diagnosis over the past decade, was fundamentally misunderstood. Bringing his world-class research to bear on the problem, He devised a radical new theory of the disorder. People like I don't feel too little. They feel too much. Their senses are too delicate for this world. Reviewers Virginia Johnson and John Curtis state that Wagner does an exceptional job of mixing biography with complex, yet accessible neuroscience, This is an essential read for parents, educators, physicians, and specialists working with children of all ages. My third selection is Rising, Becoming the First Canadian Woman to Summit Mount Everest, a memoir by Sharon Wood. She's the owner of Adventure Dynamics, a speaking and mountain guiding business more than 30 years after her historic ascent the canmore-based climber speaker and writer sharon wood offers her first full-length account of her contribution to the 1986 canadian everest expedition an account that is affecting and personal as part of the canadian team sharon wood became the first woman from the Americas to summit Mount Everest, and the first woman in the world to do so via the West Ridge from Tibet and without Sherpa support. But it is how she got there that is truly compelling. In rising, the personal motivation that drove Wood to reach further and further heights are detailed through the years leading up to the career-defining climb. Often, the only woman on expeditions, Wood was an outlier in a predominantly male bastion of high-altitude alpine climbing. Against the backdrop of the stunning Himalayan mountains in the days before Everest became as commercialized as it is today, Wood explores the camaraderie and rivalry, the relatable challenges of falling in and out of love and how she kept her drive to persevere. Subsequently, she recounts how she struggled with unexpected acclaim and expectations following her ascent of Everest, but ultimately found fulfillment and her place in the world. As she tells her story today, Her perspective is steeped in six decades of life experience, rich with adrenaline, change, reflection, and humility. It is a tale that still feels poignantly relevant, a testament to the strength of the human spirit to overcome all obstacles, whether mountain peaks, social expectations, or self-imposed barriers. Rising is sure to become a classic in the genre of climbing memoirs by making the impossible possible on a difficult and rarely repeated route up the world's highest mountain. Sharon Wood's everest journey should inspire women and climbers the world over, challenging us to be strong, stilly eyed, and present in each moment and to persevere in summary. This is a story of determination in which the objective is the end and the end the objective. My fourth and last book for today is Family Papers, A Sephardic Journey Through the 20th Century by Sarah Abrevaya-Stein. Sarah Abrevaya-Stein is the author or editor of many books, The recipient of the Sami Rohr Prize for Jewish Literature, two National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowships, a Gagenheim Fellowship, and the National Jewish Books Awards, Stein lives with her family in Santa Monica, California. This book has been named one of the best books of 2019 by The Economist and a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice, and is a National Jewish Book Award finalist. Prominent historian of the Sephardic community, Stein shares the true story of a Sephardic Jewish family preserved in thousands of letters and other documents. For centuries, the bustling poor city of Salonika was home to the sprawling Levi family. At that time, Jews, primarily Sephardim, who were expelled from Spain and Portugal, constituted approximately 50% of the population of the great poor city. They participated in every level of economic, social, and cultural life there. As leading publishers and editors, the Levy family helped chronicle modernity as it was experienced by Sephardic Jews across the Ottoman Empire. The wars of the 20th century, however, redrew the borders around them in the process transforming the Levies from Ottomans to Greeks Family members soon moved across boundaries and hemispheres, stretching the familial diaspora from Greece to Western Europe, Israel, Brazil, and India. In time, the Holocaust nearly eviscerated the clan, eradicating whole branches of the family tree. Dr. Stein, the author, meticulously traces the family's physical and psychological journeys throughout the 20th century via letters, diaries, and other documents saved by various family members throughout the world. She also located and interviewed the few surviving family members. In family papers, the author uses the family's correspondence to tell the story of their journey across the arc of a century and the breadth of the globe. They wrote to share grief and to reveal secrets, to propose marriage and to plan for divorce, to maintain connection. They wrote because they were family, and years later, Stein discovers, what remains solid is the fragile tissue that once held them together, neither blood nor belief, but papers. The author begins her study with a memoir written by the founder of the dynasty, Saadi, 95 pages written in a simple notebook passed through four generations of the family. Dr. Stein discovered other family documents written in eight languages in South Africa, England, Canada, France, Greece, Germany, Hungary, Israel, Portugal, Italy and the United States. They are, Stein says, spread across nine countries and three continents. The single largest collection, the papers of Leon Levy, is kept by his four grandchildren in a private vault in Rio de Janeiro. It consists of nearly 5,000 handwritten and typed letters, telegrams, photographs, legal and medical documents, and miscellanea. By far the largest private archive I have encountered as a professional historian and near-obsessive document hunter, she says. The Levy Cousins, Stein writes, had lived under Ottoman, Greek, German, French, Spanish, Portuguese, British, Indian, and Brazilian rule. They had witnessed the 1917 fire in Salonica, the Balkan Wars, the First and Second World Wars, and they had emigrated in multiple directions, some more than once. According to a critic, reading family papers is an enthralling experience, not only for its emotional impact, but also for its revelations in a chapter of Jewish history about which little is written. Stan uses the Levy's letters to tell not only their history, but the history of Sephardic Jews in the 20th century. Well, This is all for today's program, and I hope that you get to read one of these books. Thank you for your attention, and I wish you a happy reading.